night Talking movies with two guys named Mike They usually cover films that win goals But this series is all Tarantino Rumors and a few of these Michael Madsons in like five Here we go Talking the movies of Q MMOs reviewing movies of Q's Tarantino The rewatch series brought to you by MMO And we're back July 23rd, 2019 on this, the 20th anniversary of the live-action Inspector Gadget movie adaptation (laughs) starring Matthew Broderick. We all remember that one, and equally as famed in cinema history is this movie that we're talking about today, our final entry looking back at Quentin Tarantino's directorial canonical movies where he wrote and directed them each. We are covering The Hateful Eight today. This is Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I'm your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also Mike. Also Mike, I feel like uh, Harry and Dumb and dumber when he's slapping himself in the face trying to stay awake while driving yeah it's about right forgive us if we're out of our minds but i did enjoy the inspector gadget reference you're welcome (laughs) but mike is this the eighth movie because i count nine and if you if you consider my best friend's birthday another film that he wrote and directed that would be ten this makes no sense to me other than the obvious stuff where, all right, volume one and volume two of Kill Bill, that counts as one, or Death Proof didn't count because that was part of a double feature. However you want to do it. Is there any question that if he does say he's retiring after film number nine or ten or whatever, that he's absolutely releasing all these in one box set and absolutely putting my best friend's birthday in there? So we're all going to have to buy it. It'll be, yeah, 13 films long. Right. Here's my 10 film. It'll be 13 films long is what will happen. Because the Star Trek movie will be in there, too. That's true, yes. Which won't count as mm-hmm. part of his canonical mm-hmm. stuff. The Whole Bloody Affair is not one movie. No, but he'll sell it as such. That is available. Yeah, it's not available It'll to be us. an upcharge. So he counts Kill Bill as one, but we can't find it all in one movie. Yeah, it, it's not available to us. And I looked on Amazon yesterday, I didn't see it. So I, will he I believe count what you're The saying. Hateful Eight as this Netflix four-part miniseries that neither of us watched for this, by the way? No. Also, he's a mess. He's like, just either make movies or don't anymore. Remember when I said talented people should do talented shit? Well, I'm tired of reading about all the stuff he does. But don't they all count as movies, though? Yes. Don't they all count as yes, movies? of course they I think do. they do. Uh, and that's what we've been doing for all of Tarantino's filmography, his directorial filmography anyway, is that we're going through them. And we have these episodes, which are two parts. They're a non-spoiler review, as well as a spoiler warning, which is from a, you'll get that warning from an up-and-coming theater group doing a Tarantino scene interpretation. And then we'll have the spoiler section at the second half of it so if you've not seen the hateful eight if you've not seen it in a while you don't remember it don't want it ruined for you don't worry you're in a safe space here the first half will be all spoiler free we'll talk about the production of it the specs all that good stuff the box office that goes along with it how what tarantino was doing in the interim between movies then we'll have that spoiler warning we'll do all our stuff in the second half where we talk about what's called classic and trademark tarantino mike you want to run down what makes these episodes different from our oscar sprint profiles we have a not so hateful eight new segments hey oh uh, basically, Is we drumming on your stomach on, on my audio. Stomach. I need to do that more. I think that's a funny sound. It's funny. I don't know. I, th- I find it funny. This is our 18th day in a row of recording. <laughs> we have a year in review where we contextualize 2015. We have our first watch stories. What made Quentin dance? Homages to all the other films. I have so many in this one. Yeah. We have MMO performs, like you said. We discuss our best scenes in trademark Tarantino. We're going to talk about Quentin's writing life and his habits in this episode. I'm not really going to break down the script necessarily. That's but a terrifying notion. It's interesting. 
interesting. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. And finally, we're going to close with a section on the Easter eggs and connections into the Tarantino-verse. Yeah, and that's what we've been doing. That's how every one of these episodes has been laid out. So for one more time, strap in, get your favorite hide-covered wagon, pick up your favorite felon to bring him to the hangman. Let's start the rundown here, Mike. <laughs> tell us about the cast and crew for The Hateful Eight. All right, so what did Quentin do between Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight? Well, the From Dust Till Dawn TV series came out, and he got a based-on-by credit, characters based-on-by credit. Money. Uh, and he played himself in the Peter Bogdanovich film, She's Funny That Way. Otherwise, he just kept writing, I, I guess. That's what he does. Yeah. So the cast here, I'm going to count them down. We got nine. Kurt Russell landed this part of John Ruth based on his impersonation of John Wayne. Mm -hmm. We got eight. Samuel Jackson is Major Marquez Warren. Quentin calls Samuel L. his go-to guy here. Sounds about right. I'm sure Michael Madsen takes offense to that. Seven. We have Jennifer Jason Lee is Daisy Domergoo or Dahmer. We'll, we'll talk about it. God, she was good. Amber Tamblin, early 30s at the time of her auditioning, played the part in the now-famous read-through mm -hmm. that Michael talked about. Sure will. And uh, Tarantino and his casting director, Victoria Thomas, decided they wanted somebody older and with a Courtney Love attitude. Jennifer Jason Lee was... So that's just an insult to Courtney Love for this character, right? <laughs> a little bit, maybe. <laughs> All right. A little bit. Uh, six, Walter Goggins is Sheriff Chris Mannix. I figured he would have gone with a stage name. Goggins. His accent was so rough to get through with this entire movie. When he speaks in real life, he's just a normal guy right. speaking like this. Right. Like, I'm from Tennessee, but this is how I speak. <laughs> Goggins. Gojin. Yeah. I don't know. The Where tilde. am I? Five. Uh, Damien Bashir is Bob. Mexican Bob. Academy Award nominated Damien Bashir. We have four. Tim Roth is Oswaldo Mowbray, and I love the way his face looks whenever he says his name. What a great, great actor he is. <laughs> Three is Michael Madsen. Joe Gage. Gotta click in the door! <laughs> Two is Bruce Dern, General Sandy Smithers. All right, so is Bruce Dern just an actual racist? I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm sure he's not, but the last two scenes we've seen him in with both Tarantino movies during the study, he has not been a good guy. Not at all. <laughs> and just to show you how tired we are and exhausted, I think I said one number twice, so Bruce Dern should have been one. Oh. Eight to one. Well, you said nine. Oh, I wow. thought you were throwing somebody else in there. I'm a lunatic. Yeah. I guess one would be James Parks then. <laughs> I thought you were making plays... a long-running joke. <laughs> <laughs> who plays OB. And he, interestingly enough, there are nine people in Minnie's Haberdasheries, and the, the movie is titled The Hateful Eight. This is supposedly his eighth film. It's a play on the Magnificent Seven title, and there's nine people in a place where there's only supposed to be eight, because this is his ninth film, isn't it? Isn't that the reason? Why well, was six afraid of seven? <laughs> is, that, is that a joke? Seven was a serial killer. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Zoe Bell, Gene Jones, Keith Jefferson, and Dana Courier. Uh, they also have big roles this in this as well, and uh, I love this ensemble. Yeah, one name a little conspicuous by his absence, but I can understand why. We'll get there in the spoiler section, no yep. doubt. Uh, let's talk about some specs for The Hateful Eight here. It's one last Tarantino movie for us. 
so why not have one last controversy? It just wouldn't be right to end the spec section of his first eight directorial canonical films any other way. And for the man who loads up his scenes with subtext and who which entire seminars could be taught about life, imitating art, imitating life, it's maybe most proper that this final controversy is not only something that can be taken lightly in retrospect, but also a slight allegory at times for the, art, <laughs> for the art with which the life of the controversy itself would end up imitating. Because The Hateful Eight debuted December 7th, 2015 at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. I still think when the computers have their uprising, that's the place that we should have all our fight for mankind battles at the Cinerama Dome. <laughs> Battle of the Cinerama <laughs> Dome. So this is where it debuted December 7th. It went wide across the U.S. Well, limited Christmas Day went wide New Year's Eve. Still at the end of 2015 there. If all this was done at the behest... Of the Weinstein Company, and this would, of course, be Tarantino's last ride with the Weinstein Company for very understandable reasons that we've already covered in previous films. Mm -hmm. This actually turned out to be a disappointment at the box office, and critically, no doubt, as coming off Django's just having made upwards of $450 million worldwide, this follow-up was made for about 40 to $50 million, depending on which source you trust, and only procured $156 million worldwide while landing a 7.8 IMDb score, 68 meta rating, and 74-76 Rotten Tomatoes split between the tomato meter and audience score so it made some you know spending spend money yeah trump change pocket change there not, not good on the uh, 30 million yeah eh, not good on the after, after how wide a success now great a success yeah. they give it that prime christmas release they, they certainly thought it was going to contend for oscars we get what we get it made a couple headwaves there but none of that is the very serious that turns out to be not so serious controversy that we would end our specs for all of quentin tarantino's past films with <laughs> no Rather, we get to instead talk about the real-life, honest-to-God whodunit with regards to a Tarantino script, which is, in part, a whodunit. Mm -hmm. Because, of course we do, and of course it is. The Hateful Eight wasn't supposed to happen, or at least Tarantino had completely abandoned it soon after he finished writing his first draft of it, because, based off of stories from The Guardian, Entertainment Weekly, LA Times, and others, somebody leaked that first draft to the press, and in January of 2014, a link to the PDF of the script would find its way onto famously now-defunct tabloid website Gawker.com. Mm -hmm. What made this case into an honest-to-goodness whodunit is the fact that Tarantino claims he only handed his draft of the script to six people three of which were actors who he had written parts for in the film, in Tim Roth, Bruce Stern, and Michael Madsen. And they were all cast, so probably <laughs> this is not them, so we're down to three other people now. We know how painstakingly the director goes through his scripts over and over again, and in the rewriting process, and we know how he very much likes controlling what his audience finally does see from him. So when this all happened, a first draft who he had only given to people he trusted of a script that was very much not a finished product by Tarantino standards, was found to be leaked online in an act that could have only been done by one of a few Tarantino confidants, the director became incensed. Daisy Domergoo, perhaps? <laughs> All right, so Tarantino was interviewed by Christopher Nolan at the DGA, and they talked about this. Quentin was writing this script much differently than he wrote the others. He was basically writing one draft, and then he was going to live. Live with the script for a while. Analyze it. Live with it. See what happens. He's and, why directors get a bad name. And he had planned three drafts, because three, three's a great number. He That's wanted, it? Whatever. He wanted to go one, two, three drafts, and then have this space in between each one. So after he gave his script out for some feedback, and he got some feedback after each draft of it, that first one kind of really threw him off and, and in his words was fucking with his process and i get that yeah because sure. to have it public at that point and i've written first drafts that i will never let anyone <laughs> right. see for that reason 
you don't want people, you know, breaking down your story. You can totally see how that'd be that be a, a mind mess, right? Totally screwing yeah. with your head. Absolutely. You can see, especially with a guy that is this famous and he knows people are waiting for his next script and he does like controlling what people do end up seeing from him when it's out of his control. I can see him so losing I'm it. I'm on his side for this. That being said, you know, if he is such a looney tune with the way he treats his assistants, yeah. maybe that one assistant had a lot of <laughs> built up annoyance. And he's probably fairly innocent of how he treats his assistants, but if he they, they, he annoyed that one assistant <laughs> by close talking for ten years, you never know. That could well, been. Tarantino did come out and tell Deadline that he was downright depressed over the leak and that The Hateful Eight would not, in fact, be his next film, claiming that he had another movie idea in his head and would just go forward with that one instead, while publishing the leak script for this movie as its own standalone novel, never to be made into a film, or at least not until a long time had passed. So who leaked the script? Well. As Matson himself tells it, he was pretty sure everyone assumed it was him. <laughs> Talking with Entertainment Weekly, Matson recalls a conversation about the leak with Tarantino in which the director said that he was sure it wasn't Tim Roth. And Madsen, desperate to prove his own innocence, told Quentin that he took the script and threw it into his own closet the day he got it, never to be seen by anyone. Also begging Tarantino to come out and make a statement because he was sure everyone thought it was him. <laughs> Still, Tarantino wanted blood and a fall guy, so he would actually file suit against Gawker before dropping the suit and oh proclaiming God. that, quote, My whole thing wasn't against Gawker. It was against Hollywood practices that have just been considered okay. You know, when Brian De Palma was making Scarface, I wanted to know anything I could about the movie before it opened. A still shot. A shot in the set. Anything. Okay? I get it. That was my attempt at what you do better than I do. Eventually, obviously, the production would resume on this film, and Tarantino would announce just months later after a live reading of the script in L.A. during April of that same year of 2014 that we were back on for production of this film. Just don't expect an answer, a concrete one anyway, as to who actually leaked the script. Tarantino has said a few times he believed it was someone's agent, but whether he actually knows specifically who is at fault or not, his stance publicly has always been to say that he doesn't know who done it. That's crazy. That's crazy. And that recontextualizes one of the scenes at the end of this movie so well. He actually had a quote saying that the part of the reason he actually decided to go through with writing this script... Was it was this was the Entertainment Weekly article was because he need he was curious to know who leaked the script, so he figured he'd finish writing his own who done it, so he'd know who did that at least. And he basically plant like a way to figure it out, right. like the next draft was released. <laughs> right? Yeah, he's a madman. That's funny. Plot premise reads: In the dead of a Wyoming winter, a bounty hunter and his prisoner find shelter in a cabin currently inhabited by a collection of nefarious characters. Yeah, <laughs> that's what this movie is about. <laughs> so my first watch of this, this was a rough movie during that Christmas break a few years back. <laughs> I saw it one, on one of the first few nights, and I remember walking out and just saying, WTF. Mm -hmm. Then I went back and saw it again, maybe the next week, and I walked out and I said to myself, WTF. <laughs> now, this study is a bit more therapeutic because I do feel like I have a, a firmer grasp on things, mm -hmm. even though I still... Don't uh, know it inside and out. I Hopefully we can generate discussion that will organically help <laughs> us clarify the entire film. But uh, I do feel uh, much better now. I'm not just saying WTF. I think, you know, I think the Internet has done a nice job. And I, I really like to break down this movie because it, it's dense. I'm saying WTF. This was my first <laughs> watch of it. I had never seen this movie before. Uh, this watch is the first time I consumed it. 
just texting Dance me. Is, yeah. Where's the plot? I was just angry. At what the first is hour. happening? Because we were just recording nonstop and watching things and recording and talking about them. And it's just like, I can't sit here for an hour plus as nothing happens. How about the zoom in on the crucifix? I have that as on Tarantino. <laughs> Three minutes. Right off the bat. <laughs> Zoom in on the crucifix to start the film. Yeah. Uh, let's get into production values here, Mike. We're going to start with cinematography. It lost to The Revenant, but uh, Robert Richardson was nominated against Carol, Mad Max, Fury Road, and Sicario. Mike, he used wide-angle lenses in confined spaces, much like The Shining, much like a lot of great chamber pieces. There is a terrific 43-minute video from cinematography database fan i just i ate up this this morning i cool. loved every minute of it. it explains so much talks about the blue hues that they actually use to basically filter all the images and you don't think of stuff like that you know ob- the obvious stuff is like all right the matrix everything was like greenish tint right right and fincher's got his own thing going on mm-hmm. with his movies whether it's yellow or whatever with the with seven but we have this movie, it's like all these bluish hues to, to talk about the snow, to give it that weird feel on the feel outside. Like it's cold all the time, yeah. But you see, like, the production stills, and it's very obvious when the production, you don't have the blue hues, and it's all white. Yeah. And then the blue, and this guy was doing a great job breaking it down. I'm sorry I didn't find his name from Cinematography Database Fan, where he was just, like, literally painting real white next to the blue. Huh. On the top of the screen, it was fascinating. That's and crazy. It was crazy. So, Definitely sounds like a video worth checking out. I'll have to go uh, do some research on that myself. That's they, awesome. They also did a great job showing all the behind-the-scenes Bob Richardson crane stuff. And Tarantino's like, we use the crane for everything. If I was going to zoom in on this water bottle between you and me, Christopher <laughs> Nolan, I would have used the crane. And it was great because these crane and the gaffer, like, I wonder how much the gaffer is actually holding things up. Yeah. And how much he's really helping them. And then you got the focus puller. And another funny quote was like, Nolan's like, were you in the sidecar? You know, because, you know, it could have been Richardson. And, right. and Terrence, he's like, I would never do that to one of my gaffers. Put my fat ass up there <laughs> with, with Richardson. So it was pretty funny. So I love the cinematography. It was well-deserved nominee, I thought. I don't know where they found I know where they found it. It was some 900-acre farm where they were actually shooting. that They had to, like, construct the haberdashery on their own and get permits mm-hmm. for it. That's all, I think, on the Wikipedia page, if I remember right. But the they just look the outdoor scenes were what kind of took my breath away. It's just yeah. they looked like a movie set kind of. It's just snow Most and then the horizon line, the beautiful trees, <laughs> horizon. That's all it is. I can't imagine there's a place that exists where there's no there's scenes with no trees. It's just white hills that against a blue sky. That these types of places actually exist bewilders me. But and it was kind of cool to see. They shot it on big cameras. Yeah. With the old school cameras. They, there's this whole thing in that video about the, the Ben-Hur cameras. And it was on lenses that Rob Richardson yeah. found in the back uh, <sighs> that were super rare. That literally they only used for Ben-Hur or something like that. And they Crazy. were all geeking out about these lenses. And then they reproduced some more of them just so they had enough. It's fascinating stuff. Okay, I want to get into the production design and the costume design because once once again, I think this is like the hero of the uh, production values for me. As good as the cinematography is, Minnie's haberdashery is one of the best settings he's at. It's just so cool, and it and it's so important to this movie. 
to, oh, yeah. to have basically like a 12 Angry Men setting mm-hmm. where the water cooler has got to be a different look than the wall overlooking the parking lot and and the table. I mean, the fireplace here yeah. is its own unique setting, and then the kitchen, and then the coffee pot, and then the door, of course. All those viewpoints have to be unique. And it, it, to me, it's genius. Like the candy shelf, it, it's really great. I don't understand why places like this don't actually exist more often. <laughs> I don't understand the functionality of this haberdashery. I don't think it's meant to be like an inn. No, it's know, just like a crossroads. midway point yeah. for, for people traveling across the uh, the mountain there. I don't think they really take people in for long stays no. at all. Those like two beds. Yeah. One's, one's Sweet Dave's and one's Minnie's, right? Or, I think... I think Bars should be like this, though. <laughs> Just, like, have wide-open setting, have bar, maybe some chess game if you want to play, go hang out by a fireplace. Oh, I would totally nice hang out here right? if yeah. it wasn't full of murdering bastards. Yeah, you got to take the good with the bad sometimes in life. <laughs> I love the costumes, too. They're love big. the costumes. Absolutely love them. They've, that Samuel L. Jackson look has kind of become iconic, at least to me. It's, yeah. It sticks out in my mind. Those coats? Yeah. I know the coats have a, you know developed a bad name because one of them's gray, but <laughs> you have the coats with the snow hitting the back of them. I mean, that, that, you use that for the poster. Yeah. Samuel, with his arms outstretched, used it for as a poster for a reason. I loved all of the, the characterization done through those costumes. and it, I want to analyze them on their own. I, I really am upset that it didn't get a costume design. It's on. a little, I, I guess, recency bias and a little probably unfair for me to say but like right now as i think about it if i'm thinking of an, an iconic look from samuel L. jackson from a tarantino movie i might rival this with what he did in, with jewels in pulp fiction yeah I, I, this might be the first one that comes to mind just if i were to think of something off the top I'd of the agree. head now those floors must stink you know everything is falling on the floors <laughs> from the coffee to the chicken feathers to the blood to the spit give me a break yeah. those those floors it can't smell good in there <laughs> It really can't. Uh, well, judging by everyone's teeth, I don't think hygiene was at the top of everyone's mind anyway. There's smell death yeah. or whatever. I think the editing is extraordinary as well. I really loved how you know he stretches the rubber band and the suspense scenes. really love how you get the fast cutting during the action scenes. He's a uh, master shot master once again. All the wide angle stuff really pays off. All the overhead stuff really pays off. I, I love the cinematography and the editing and, and all the coverage they must have got. Because it's pretty incredible. I appreciated it for what it was, but coming off of Django, I thought it was all kind of a step back. Well, you got much more to work with than Django. That's true. In a way. More to play with. That's absolutely true. But just, I, I thought I was blown away and more impressed by watching Django, and then yeah, this was kind I of can, a callback to reality. That's fine. If yeah. we were ranking them, I would probably yeah. rank Django higher. But Django's more of a showcase because right. it's faster cut and you need different kind of scenes. Let's get into sound, though, because we're going to ask what made Quentin dance here, but i got a nugget about the score first. Best original score Oscar winner here, yeah. Ennio Morricone, took home the gold for this one, his, his very first Oscar. So as Quentin tells it, basically he sits down with Morricone over dinner, and he's like, can you write me this score? Can you write me something original here? I, this is the first time where I'm, I'm kind of asking you that. And Morricone's like, I got two weeks before I start on another film. I don't think I have the time. But I had this really great idea after you sent me the script in Italian last night. And then Tarantino's like, well, do tell. And, of course, Morricone's like, well, I want it to sound like there's going to be all this violence in the movie. And Tarantino's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was just this really funny uh, clip 
Tarantino describing this meeting. But all this is after the story I told in the yeah, last that's episode. Yeah, that's my question was going to be. So this is after Morricone swore him off? Yeah. Morricone's like, I'm never working with this guy again. And all the reports on Django were that he used previously recorded footage. But as Tarantino tells it in, in these production stories, Morricone's like recording something fresh for him and then in the middle of his production for somebody else or you know production of the score for somebody else Morricone's like I'm going to send you some more music now <laughs> and Tarantino's like yes and then the more and more he sent him the more he used huh. he used some stuff from, from other Morricone films as well uh, and I just I thought that was a weird story maybe that's the secret from Morricone's relationship with Tarantino work from 3,000 feet away and don't get your bogged down day to day on set with the guy I hate you I love you I right. hate you I love you where have we heard that maybe yeah. every single Hollywood production, right? Bet Midler comes to mind. <laughs> uh, Roy Orbison, Mike, he actually directed a musical western called The Fastest Guitar of Live, Alive, yeah. And that's where the song There Won't Be Many Coming Home comes from. I'd never heard that Roy Orbison song before the credits of this movie. Pretty great song, yeah. The White Stripes Apple Blossom is in here, took me by surprise, didn't expect that in a western. And very surprisingly, Now You're All Alone by David Hess from. Guess what? Yeah. Wes, Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left. What a sick bastard Tarantino is. <laughs> so what made him dance? My guess is as good as yours, The White Stripes. That's what I would put my money on, but again, it's one of those things. I, I think this film should have come out before Django. I just think with the technical specs, Django is probably superior in every way. And you're right, it's unfair to compare them apples to apples, but that's what you're going to do if they come out in this chronological order. And Django's soundtrack is just a banger through and through. Definitely. And this is, again, kind of a step back. So I thought there was tons of options in this one, less, uh, tons of options in Django, I should say, less in The Hateful Eight. And I would, my guess would be The White Stripes, but we're picking from maybe three or four songs here. Yeah, there's another major influence in terms of scoring, but I'm going to get to that in spoilers. Uh, let's get into the performances because we have an Oscar nominee, Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah. Nominated. Uh, she lost to Alicia Vikander from The Danish Girl, Rooney Mara for Carol, Rachel McAdams Spotlight, Kate Winslet for Steve Jobs also nominated. So I'm usually pretty good at knowing whether or not a character is telling the truth based on their performance. Like mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've developed an eye. Mm-hmm. I can't tell in this movie. <laughs> I mean, that's the biggest thing. Like, they're so ambiguous. Like, you cannot tell if they're true or well, not this, true. Well, the screenplay doesn't afford you any hints either. I wonder if Tarantino's like, all right, act it like you did it, and then act it like you didn't do it. Right. In yeah. one scene and then the next scene, and then just to screw with us, because you have eight unreliable narrators in this sure. film. That's what Tarantino has talked about throughout the production uh, interviews, and they really do a great job of keeping us on our toes. No disagreements about anything you said there. I Again, this is played down the middle, so... Usually, in terms of telling if someone's lying, you have some context clues with the base it off of, but the claim we need to judge as to whether Jennifer Jason Lee's character is lying about something, which is so important, comes from basically out of left field mm-hmm. that we don't have any time to judge its weight anyway. Right. So I think that's that kind of plays into effect, too, that you're right. I couldn't tell either way. The what stakes are so high yeah. that they need to lie so well, right. or they need to tell the truth so well that they're really putting you know great performances and got great actors here. If I'm going to rank The Hateful Eight, I'm going to say Sam is one, Lee is two, Goggins is three, Russell's four, Bashir, Roth, Madsen, Dern. But that's like impossible to do it. I don't know. Who would you have up top? Lee would be my number one. She'd be your I number one. I loved her in this movie. Where I, would you put Russell's? I'm curious about because I like this performance. So I have an issue. This is just personal bias, but it's really tough mm-hmm. to watch Kurt Russell in another Tarantino movie 
beating around a woman. Oh. It's really tough for Brutal. me to stomach. And I, I you know, I, I get that's not his entire character, and I understand it's... I mean, she's a, a convicted felon. There's a bounty on her head. He's a bounty hunter. She's a prisoner. Danger, right. very dangerous right. one. I, I understand there are differences, but it's still him punching a woman around. Yeah, I don't know how deep the symbolism goes or how wide, I guess you should, you would say, but we're going to talk about it in spoilers. Uh, let's get into some non-spoiler script thoughts here. I want to kind of start with the actual non-spoiler script thoughts for a change you know. in this non-spoiler script thoughts segment. Sounds like a good place to do it. So Tarantino wanted to write a mystery with Django as the central character, and that's who the Samuel Jackson role was supposed to be. It mm-hmm. was supposed to be Jamie Foxx here. A little older, but Django was supposed to be in this movie. There was supposed to be Django too, essentially. See, he should have known better than to try to write two back-to-back films in the same genre. That's on him. That's why this yeah. thing went haywire. So eventually he decided, he's like, I can't have a moral center to this when it comes to these eight characters, and everybody would just be rooting too hard for Django that he changed it to Major Warren and gave it to Samuel Jackson, and he just can't go with a, a superhero in this film in a tarantino quote he says everyone should be untrustworthy most importantly you shouldn't be able to trust anything anyone says there is some murky past to what everybody has yeah i think that's very fair and of course if Django is the main character in this a lot of these characters are so reprehensible (laughs) Yeah. Wow, who wouldn't be rooting for Django to come out on the other side? And Django has its own, like we talked about in that episode, its own superhero story to tell anyway. So he is our Iron Man for all intents and purposes of this universe. I would have rooted for Django being like the detective of this, but at the same time, I'm rooting too hard for him. Yeah, you'd want him to win. Anyway, let's get into those homages. There are many. Quentin Tarantino said to Christopher Nolan that Key Largo was a major influence. As I well have as... not watched. I have that on DVD. Do you really? And I've meant to watch it pretty much weekly. I don't think I've seen it. I either. just don't watch it. I don't think I've seen Stagecoach. That I've never seen. The Petrified Forest. That doesn't sound like a movie. I've watched the first hour of like a three-hour The Iceman Cometh. But he, he said in that Nolan interview that those are the three things he was kind of going for. That's a George Gervin poster from the 1970s. The Iceman coming. Yeah. yeah, it must have been. That's a good <laughs> good point. A ray of light falls upon the letter Samuel Jackson shows to Kurt Russell, and this is exactly like Citizen Kane. Ah, that makes That's sense. We have the same stagecoach name as 1957's 310 to Yuma. Yeah, I saw that, and it was a real company, but it was the wrong state, apparently, and it was never in Wyoming. Oh, really? So, yeah. Edward Douglas and David Crow at Den of Geek, they wrote down a couple. Uh, Kurt Russell is the same tombstone mustache. And he lets you know it, too. Nobody <laughs> relishes throwing a mustache like Kurt Russell. Uh, Bob Ruth, that character that Kurt Russell plays, is much like the character of John Wayne, Ethan Edwards, and the Searchers. So now I'm terrified to ever go back and rewatch any John Wayne movies I've ever seen in my life. Because right? is he just slapping around women? I don't know. I <laughs> Then I just blocked it from my mind. I don't know. For a few dollars more, all these spaghetti westerns are definitely referenced here. You had an ex-Civil War soldier turned bounty hunter for a few dollars more. In Cutthroats 9, that's a Euro western about a bunch of snowed-in prisoners. Sergio Corbucci's The Great Silence is all over this one. It's in all the videos. You have a stagecoach sequence. You have victimized kind of haberdasheries. Uh, similar characters involved there. So there's a 90% chance he wrote this screenplay the way it did because haberdashery is a fun word to say, right? Definitely. All right. 100%. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly has a similar, I don't want to say torture scene, but a humiliation scene. But I can't remember seeing that movie like 15 years ago. I just remember I wasn't a huge fan of Sergio Leone films, even though I watched the Dollars trilogy. They're solid. Yeah, I've never been. Westerns have been tough for me, too. 
yeah. overall. True Grit also has a character named uh, Mexican Bob. Mm-hmm. Bob Ruth smashes a guitar like John Belushi did in Animal House. All right, Dan of Geek, you're stretching now. Well, I have one of, uh, I don't know if that's a <laughs> true homage, but I know what happened with that scene. It wasn't supposed to happen like it did. That's in the Easter egg section. Anyway, th- this next one will only be a spoiler if you've watched 1960s uh, television shows recently, but the plot is very similar to an episode of The Rebel entitled Fair Game, where a bounty hunter with a woman prisoner attached to his arm is snowed into a hotel full of the usual suspects that it devolves into some kind of mystery slash chamber piece. Of the people alive in this generation, only Quentin Tarantino and myself would have seen that episode, but I haven't. No, (laughs) so just Quentin. All right, we got to get into spoilers. All right, let's go to the movies. Or the theater! And now for your spoiler warning pleasure, the Mike Mike and Oscar Theater Company presents a Quentin Tarantino scene reenactment interpretation. You goddamn son of a bitch! I almost died out there! I ain't ever going out in that shit! Ever! Ever again! Obi takes a bearskin off the wall, drapes it over himself, and plops down by the fire. Mannix comes over. You okay, Obi? I'm fine! I'll, I'll be fine! You want some stew, Obi? Later. This is the spoiler section for the Hateful Eight, the Quentin Tarantino movie. The review brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar in our lead-up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as part of our Tarantino rewatch series. If you've not seen the movie, this is a good place for you to hit pause. Go watch it. We'll be here waiting for you when you get back from your three-hour excursion. If you've seen the movie already, if you're just curious to hear our takes on the plot, or if we've hyped up the spoiler section for you so much in the non-spoiler section that you cannot possibly go another minute without hearing our takes on it, this is where you want to be. It's all spoilers all the time ahead. Mike, Mike, and Oscar presents The Hateful Eight, the movie by Quentin Tarantino as part of our Tarantino rewatch series. Usually, we start these spoiler sections off by doing what we call trademark Tarantino and classic Tarantino, but we have a carryover regarding an homage, Mike. Yeah, I didn't want to mention it in uh, non-spoilers because it is a spoiler, essentially. The two movies that Tarantino says influenced this film the most were The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, and Reservoir Dogs. John Carpenter's The Thing was out in the snow. You have Kurt Russell as a protagonist. Mm -hmm. You end similarly with two characters. You don't know if they're going to live or die. Did they vanquish the evil or not? Are they evil themselves? All of those things are parallels in these two movies. And then, of course, in Reservoir Dogs, everybody dies. And in this movie, everybody dies. Makes a lot of sense. And you can see that. I mean, they're not exactly hidden homages either. No. You definitely get a horror movie theme feel from it sometimes. It's usually undercut Mm -hmm. by something happened, as most of Tarantino's stuff is. But, yeah, I can see those as definitely being, especially, I mean, Reservoir Dogs as an homage is because of Tim Roth and what happens to him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, that's where the Reservoir Dog homage comes correct, from. Correct. So I get that a lot. But all right, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's head over to what we call Trademark Tarantino now. And what this section is, is we classify things as either classic Tarantino, sneaky classic Tarantino, or some un-Tarantino, new Tarantino stuff. What we're doing here is breaking down what is most popular and most well-known about his film, maybe what should be most well-known and what we like most, and also some stuff that he's doing in this one that he has not done before. Mike, what do you have for classic Tarantino? So I got a couple little ones and then two big ones for classic. The long 
drive into the haberdashery where you get a lot of conversation. Like that is this. something he has done before, of yep. course. You know, the Royale with cheese from Pulp Fiction in this movie. It's the Lincoln letter. You know, that comes back again, which is very strong screenwriting. It comes back again and then again. And you give it really three acts worth of attention. Once in Act 1, once in Act 2, and once in Act 3. Again, very smart writing on his part. The wagon that we saw at the beginning of the movie over the opening credits, that turns out to be pretty damned important. That is not... Is not the six horse wagon, I, I don't think. That is the wagon that was heading up to Minnie's haberdashery, where, or no, that is the six, horse, six horse wagon, wagon. that gets everybody yeah. gets killed from. Um, that also was one of my trademark Tarantino things, too. We realized at the beginning is not the beginning. The beginning is, well, the beginning is the beginning, but the beginning after the beginning is actually the middle. Correct. And we're out of order again, much like we do for many of Tarantino's scenes. It takes us a while to realize we get out of order, but towards Act 3 there at the end, or the end of Act 2, however you want to classify it, we do realize we are out of order. That's one of my classic Tarantino things as well about this movie. Uh, yeah, and then, in a, you know, a small touch, or many small touches. I mean, the dialogue sounds like Tarantino dialogue. Sure. Alliteration. He paid a Pretty penny for privacy <laughs> from OB. I mean, yeah. you got all kinds of repetition. You got all kinds of relishes and flares. I mean, we can just uh, analyze this to the to nth degree. A lot of classic Tarantino dialogue there. What's, what's another classic thing for you, Mike? Uh, I actually found this movie to be very un-Tarantino-like, so the only other classic thing I have is that we're back to a place where the characters know more than we, the audience, do. Yeah. Except it's a little un-Tarantino-y because... There's some characters that don't find out things until we do anyway. He kind of does them both, though, yeah, this one, doesn't he? he? Does, well, for for example, like yeah. with the Lincoln letter that right. Warren has, Warren knows it's fake. Mannix figures it's fake. Mannix hilariously figures right. that it's fake. <laughs> but the only person left in the dark is Ruth, who bought it, and the, the only reason he trusted Warren to get him let him on his carriage in the first place was because he had this Lincoln letter, which is the exact purpose and the exact reason Warren fabricated this letter in the first place to fool white people gullible, and gain their trust. Gullible people don't do well in the Tarantino verse, right. as we've heard the guy say what once more time, said what again. But you could even extrapolate that idea yeah. out to the end of the movie here when the big climactic scene where Daisy's fighting for her life. She's the only one that really knows. I mean, her and Michael Madsen's character are the only ones that know if they're telling the truth or not about Absolutely. the 15 extra men coming. Absolutely. And we, unfortunately, never do find that out. We don't. Suspense 101, Quentin Tarantino's narration at an act break here, going into the new chapter of Daisy Dahmer, yeah. Goo's Got a Secret. That is fascinating, and that is basically showing you the bomb on the bus, right? That yeah. is showing you something that's about to happen. Somebody poisoned the car. <laughs> Right? I'm surprised he <laughs> cut that part out at the end. I thought that was interesting. And something that he did in Glorious Bastards to a T, and he really stretches that rubber band again here with suspense. But I would agree with you, it's more tension slash surprise yeah. than it is the suspense scenes. I also was taken so aback by that voiceover. First of all, I thought it was Rob Lowe, until it took me a minute to realize it was actually Tarantino himself. <laughs> but it comes from out of nowhere, and it's so off-putting to how the... the tone of the movie has been so far it's almost like i wonder how much he thought of before he decided i'm just gonna have to explain it in a voiceover right because otherwise i'm not gonna be able to show in scenes what's going on here well, it's done in mysteries that'll be under uh, you know be un-tarantino for us when we get to the whole yeah. mystery structure of this but the last thing for me was all the surprise violence i mean it's very, very tarantino-esque yeah, the bloodbath at the end the whole puke montage was a 
creative as hell way. It's like the worst version of the Stand By Me puke montage <laughs> that's been on, on screen. Oh my god! When I first saw that, I just went crazy. I couldn't <laughs> believe funny. it. I was like, it was funny. I mean, this and this is insane. another thing he talks about classically is that making you laugh yeah. at the inappropriateness. And there's a couple of those here for sure. Yeah, Channing Tatum gets his head blown I off. I laughed so. Okay, funny story about this. First of all, so I didn't know if we were going to bring this up this early, but Channing Tatum. Is revealed that he's Daisy Domergue's brother. He's got this big plot involved. That him, Michael Madsen, Tim Roth, Damien Bashir—they're all going to save Daisy. They know that the Hangman Ruth is coming with Daisy to bring him in, bring her into Red Rocks to hang, and they're going to set him up and kill him and take Daisy back and set her free. This is the big reveal of the movie when we get to the Who Done It stage. Mm-hmm. So. This all happens. The big shootout happens. Everybody's starting to die. We have Channing Tatum left. Daisy's left. Madsen's still alive. And we have Samuel L. Jackson, who had his nuts shut off from below Uh by Channing Tatum. He's still alive. Mannix, Walter Goggins' character, is still alive. So it's those two against the remaining vigilantes. As Channing Tatum comes up from the basement, Samuel L. Jackson blows his head off in mid pan of Daisy Domergue's character talking about how much she misses her brother and she loves that he came and it's nice to see him. It's this really heartfelt moment, totally undercut by this guy's face blowing up in front of her and her getting covered in blood. Hilarious. I laughed out loud. It was it was funny. My mother, who I'm watching this with in the background, chooses that moment, that scene of course. to say, is that the guy from the Capital One commercials? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's what made you think of it? That's funny. That's crazy. It just dawned on me, by the way, that you have two rape scenes in Tarantino movies, right? I think total. You have the scene in Pulp Fiction, and then you have this one that may or may not be true with Samuel Jackson's speech, right? They're both men-on-men rape scenes. And afterwards, both rapists get their nuts blown off. Isn't... I think that's... Poetic, Deliberate. in a way, yeah. Poetic. Could be. It's not something I would I picked up on. Good good call. I just called Could that. be, yeah. I just realized it dawned on me. But we're ready to get into the underrated sneaky classic here, Mike. And it's, I think it's sneaky classic at this point. This movie is funny at times. It is Very. funny as hell. That uh, you okay, OB? <laughs> I'm fine. Scene is hilarious. It's hilarious. Was all that horse shit? <laughs> Of course it was. <laughs> it's great. And then oh, the funny routine once, twice, three times with the door. The that's from the thing from another world. The original thing in the fifties oh, or sixties. Okay. They had a, it was inspired by whatever the door scene was in that movie. I never seen the original to be honest. But that scene killed me. Madsen's voice was made for that scene. That's God the damn it! it <laughs> you gotta kick it open. <laughs> one ain't gonna be good enough <laughs> I, I was dying you're absolutely right very funny dying every time that happened i also have for sneaky tarantino and something i want to bring up in django when we reviewed that movie but he has all these little ticks and head nods and little things happening in the background that just kind of add to the realism of the scene and in django it was it's disgusting because we're talking about slave trading and it's when the sheriff comes into the bar that Django and Schultz are in. Yeah. Django stands right up when the white man is approaching, but Schultz stays seated and it's not even the camera doesn't even focus on Django. We just see it because the camera's on Schultz, mm-hmm. knowing that he's being defiant. But there's these little head nods. He does the same here again. When we're in the, the covered wagon and Mannix 
is revealing to Ruth mm-hmm. and Daisy about the $30,000 bounty the Confederacy put on Warren's head. Yeah. There's this one glimpse off to the camera where we're looking at, at Kurt Russell's character. We're looking at Ruth's character, and he kind of gives a one-off, even though he had just entered into agreement with this man that you protect my $10,000, I'll protect your $8,000. This is a 30000 bounty. And now it's a $30,000 bounty, and we give this one look, and there's just these little marks that he does all the time like this that just add... To the viewing experience, to be quite honest, I appreciated that because it just adds more confusion. You know these are all bad people, so is that going to be the turning point? Is that going to finally make Kurt Russell's character snap? And Samuel Jackson, his performance, it's Londa-esque, you know, yeah. with what Good he's point. figured out, especially in the stable with uh, with Bob. Mm-hmm. And then when he gets in there, the whole hat thing with the stew. It's almost like Inspector Poirot type stuff, yeah. that he has this grand theater in front of him, all these people who are all possible suspects and he lays out what he thinks the plot is and the plan was it's very akin to mystery structures and, and we're almost ready to transition there but he did mention agatha christie makes a lot of sense as a major influence as well uh another small thing that i kind of mentioned already i guess i should have mentioned it all here but characters must pay for their sins like they and this is very horror movie-esque yeah they commit sins they they pay. They all commit sins. They all pay. Samuel Jackson does some horrific shit, na- some nasty stuff here, and he pays for it sure. severely. Mannix the same way, etc. But isn't that why Django wouldn't work? Right, right. He would have to win, wouldn't he? By that have by to. that logic, because he's the pure superhero. He is good. Imagine how pissed people would have been if it ended the same right. way with Django in that role. Absolutely, yeah. yeah that's I think so it was a good mad. call. It's a lot of what Tarantino has done and you this is a point you brought up earlier. I think it's worth reiterating, but he his movies have been improved by things he he's decided not to pursue in them. Right. And that takes a that takes a very very appropriate touch and a very mature touch to realize when you are going too far with the script. I think that's kind of cool. He makes some wise tough decisions, I yeah. guess we, we we could say. And he always lets us know about it. Yes, so, yes, of he's course, not, uh, not when shy. He makes a good decision yeah. or what he thinks is a good decision, <laughs> and he definitely hypes it up and uh, maybe <laughs> embellishes a tad. Yeah. So he lets us know. Another small role for an A-list actor in an authoritative position. Channing Tatum is a Jody yeah, and this ha- he has to be someone like Ving Rhames and Harvey Keitel and Michael Parks. He's got to have a lot of force behind him. You got to believe that he is going to be someone who could order around Michael Madsen and Tim Roth and his sister and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. He's got to have that cachet. He does because you can picture him, the action star at the time, as this great outlaw character. Yeah, and the ru- I, mean, I don't know that necessarily goes along with your point, but. In the script itself, the ruthlessness with which those characters are portrayed, mm-hmm. it's underscored by the fact that look at how they actually finally finish off the women that they're facing. The Zoe Bell character, the mini character. Yeah. These people don't die from their first gunshots. They die when they're bleeding out and they get a couple more bullets put into them. And what's happening when they finally put those final bolts into them, these bad guys are conversing about what the plan is next, what they're going to do next, like it's a day in the life. It's so casual, yeah, and that's disturbing. the scariest part. Yeah. It's like Kill Bill, those characters right. in, in, in other movies where they're just casually stone cold in, in, in the killings. Uh, and speaking of Kill Bill, that's my last sneaky Tarantino thing, is that Tarantino, like he wanted to do, if he, Kill Bill was one movie, he finally gets his multi-genre film here. I mean, it wouldn't be as stark as if they put the two Kill Bills together where we had a cut Fu movie and basically a family drama movie. Yeah. But this one, we we get basically an old West movie for the first hour, and then it turns into a Who Done It for the last hour and a half, hour and forty minutes. So he sure. does finally get his cross genre movie that he wanted to do in the first place with Kill Bill. So I thought that was.
was a little underrated by him. So yeah, let's get into Untarantino now. He's playing with the timeline, but he's doing it much more sparingly and much more classically, I would say. Not his classic way of doing things. But he only jumps back once. Well, tw- twice if you count the Samuel <laughs> story. Yeah, yeah. So flashbacks, dubious stories, you know, those sequences, that's traditional the traditional way of doing things, especially in a mystery where you need to have a kind of a revelation plot or scenes or acts that really turn on a revelation of who did it or exactly how they did yeah. it. So that, that I thought that was very interesting and he honors the, the mystery storytelling conventions. It's funny because he said that you can't do a slasher film without breaking the, the rigidity of... If you break the rigidity of what a slasher film is, you don't have a slasher film. Yep. You would think that almost is the same for a mystery because you have to hit the same notes. Not the same notes as a slasher film, but you have to hit the same mystery notes to kind of build up the suspense, and he does that here. Yep. And yet he doesn't really have a problem delivering a mystery. So I wonder if he's just kind of psyching himself out of being able to write a slasher. I think he'd be able to do it, no problem. I think that's a concern you have. It is. Oh, no it, doubt. If, it's a concern I have. Else I want my Tarantino slasher movie. His version of the slasher was Death Proof, Mike. <laughs> Okay, that no, that's my, not a slasher. That's, that's how I would do it. That slasher. was gross. <laughs> All right, so the mystery story structure convention number two is to have your detective basically talk out loud the the mystery, to unravel the mystery. The Inspector Poirot portion. Yeah, that is very much a convention, and you have Samuel Jackson doing that. Just what I thought. Sweet Dave's goddamn blood. <laughs> For the second movie in a row... You do have Samuel Jackson figuring things out sooner, figuring out a ruse, but he's doing the detective thing here in, in a major way. And, and, you know, everyone leading into that was a red herring or everything was a red herring up to that point. So, again, all these mystery conventions with un, unreliable narrators, everybody being suspicious. And the biggest thing for me is what's a truth and what's a lie? You have three major questions that never get answered. Yeah. Does Daisy Dahmer Goo have another 15 gang members who are going to sack Red Rock if she's killed? So that, to me, is what's in the briefcase from Pulp Fiction. Did Marquez Warren really know the son of General Smithers, or was that a lie to get him to draw the gun? Right. Like Mannix was saying. And then was Chris Mannix actually going to become the sheriff of Red Rock? (laughs) Was he after Marquez? Uh, on an old bounty yeah. that Who he knows? thought was because a lot of those rednecks were coming up there to sh- shoot Marquez. Yeah. Was he tracking Samuel Jackson? And that's how why they were both, because that was a coincidence, man. There's a series of coincidences to the point where you thought like this was a, a metaphor for purgatory because everybody oh, yeah. knows everybody. Well, well, that and because of the Coen Brothers movie from last year. Right. <laughs> where, where, the, exactly. where that was a metaphor for purgatory. Sorry for spoiling that if you, don't, Scruggs, if you know what that is. Well, yeah. one of the stories. Right. Yeah. So, I, I agree, and it's funny that the only character that was onto that from the get-go is Ruth, who mm-hmm. is so insecure about everything that he just wants Warren to put on cuffs for the ride. He wants Mannix to put on cuffs. He wants to be in control of everything. I thought was kind of, that was kind of funny. I don't think Mannix was searching for a bounty. That's just my two cents. But I, I agree with He you. could have killed Warren at any point and chose not to. Yeah, but <laughs> at the same time, was he biding his time like right. the other people were biding their time in the premise of the situation. I don't know. Like, the fact that nobody went to sleep makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah. Right? Great. There wasn't enough beds. You didn't need them. It didn't matter. A couple more little things. The worst things are said in this movie. Uh, Kurt Russell, that's the problem with old men. You can kick them down the stairs and say it was an accident, 
but you can't just shoot them. Jesus Christ. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> Slow motion dialogue from Samuel Jackson. I've never seen Tarantino do that before. You're making a deal with this <laughs> diabolical. I've never seen that before. No, that's no. And then the major question hanging over this, so I guess it's not a little thing. People have suggested this is an allegory. I don't know if it is an allegory. Nobody's been able to pinpoint it. So if it's a political allegory, I mean, this is made in 2015. Sure. We're heading into 2016's right election. In cusp, yeah. We have a major party nominating a woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, if it's obvious symbolism, if it's, you know, a woman with a lot of marks against her, let's be honest, and I'm a Democrat. Well, women, not even just Daisy Donoghue, but women are treated like garbage in this movie garbage yeah i mean they're abused they're shot it's a nightmare they're throwaway characters there's no main character that's a woman except for the one that's a terrible felon well some people have talked about this basically saying that even if everybody's racist against everybody else and everybody is racist Mm -hmm. in this movie everybody including Minnie, for christ's sake racist against mexicans if everybody's has these racial tendencies and these biases they'll still gang up guys versus girls and the guys will gang up against the women yeah. and the chauvinism will still exist <laughs> and that's what tarantino is very clearly saying yeah. in, in many ways is this an allegory i don't quite see it i don't think he would reduce his things to to being allegorical and, and, and very closed and it would be a pretty terrifying cynical allegory if that's what he was actually saying there's a shot at the end with red white and blue in it on the bed that's very clear uh, that everybody's saying this is an allegory on American history, but if he's doing his kind of version of The Shining here, right? Mm-hmm. That's in The Shining, and The Shining is not an allegory. It's just it's symbolic of all that. Well, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> no, yeah, give me a break. I, I, I'm serious. There's there's documentaries yeah. that suggest it's about the Native Americans. But if it's about everything else too, then it can't well, be an allegory. I'm just Again, saying, <laughs> it's mutually exclusive things when you have that vocabulary word thrown in. I've, I'm sticking with this. Uh, do you have anything else for Untarantino, Mike? Yeah, the first stupid scene of this movie. <laughs> That long, wordless pan down of Jesus on the cross with the wagon in the distance. I love the song. God, that I really, was awful. The score is great, but I'm I'm ready for this 70 millimeter well, there was beautiful no, footage. I went back and I looked up on YouTube every single opening of every movie we've covered so far. We yeah. at least get a character. We get some dialogue. We have the Reservoir Dogs conversation around the table, even though it's gross. We have Jackie Brown going through the airport. Well, you know, we have something. It's supposed to be a metaphor for kind of manifest destiny. I don't care. Christ was destined to be crucified in a way. It looks beautiful. And the score you know, is great. You're thank right. God he gave us the nature shots first. Right. Before that. Yeah. Because I, I would agree. Yeah, I love the, the, the original score by Morricone. I, I wish it was in, you know more in, involved. I like that he featured it there. I just Yeah, I wish he had a different visual. I would yeah. agree. Like like or, he, or, or character or something. Not to, I understand the artistic relevance of it, but I, I just wasn't crazy about it. Also on Tarantino, for me, mm-hmm. having this be my first watch, you get 68 minutes into the plot, and I had no idea why everyone was still there. I had no idea what the plot was. That's when I texted you. I was like, what the hell happens in this movie? Yeah. I mean, we have the little things, but we, and we know something's going on, but we're not introduced to the coffee yet. All we know is that Ruth is a hangman. He picked up Mannix and Warren, and they ended up at this pla- this haberdashery. Right. We're, we're dealing with stables and horses, we're not dealing with any kind of mystery yet. We don't know who Minnie is yet, really. We're bogged down in the minutiae. Yeah, really it's so are. the pacing of this is so excruciatingly slow compared to every other Tarantino movie. Definitely, I think it's a very un-Tarantino type thing. And on top of that, 
we make up for it in the end of Act 2 and Act 3 with all sure. the blood that's spilled. But up until the point where Ruth is trying to get everyone's gun, he's trying to get Gage's gun off him, Gage is resistant and is going to pull his gun to fire on Ruth, but Warren comes from behind and holds a knife up to his neck and draws that one drip of blood. That one drip of blood outside of Daisy Domerdew getting beat up by Ruth yeah. is the only blood we have in this movie yet for the first half. There's right. no blood in a Tarantino movie other really? than that one drip of blood for the first half of the movie. We get the score. We get the bodies that yeah. are frozen and shots of them. We get all this tough talk, but we don't see any blood right. for like an hour and a half. I would agree with you. It was very surprising. Uh, I think the setting is is unique. Uh, I think he's got like these cosmic forces in the setting. Like the blizzard is definitely like a hand of God right. thing to get them all into that. Well, that's spot. what made me think this was a religious allegory at first, yeah. because those are just whiteout conditions. You can't move, so of course you're going to be sequestered. And if you're the only people you can counter off of, he you calls would think it it's a, some kind of religious thing. Yeah, he calls it a white hell, and yeah, and they're talking politics throughout this movie. Usually, they're talking bullshit. Yeah, right about royals with cheese about. You know, the, the ammo and the guns you know, in the Jackie Brown movie. We have serious political talk that kind of scarily mirrors fake news talk nowadays. Like, I was literally at work, and I was, the, these two guys were having a conversation that wasn't all that different, obviously minus the overt racism, than a conversation in this movie. And I was, like, freaking out. I was squirming. I was like, get me anywhere but here. Well, the... the- the working prism for most of this movie is that the only time white people are safe is when black people are scared. And the only time black people are safe is when white people are unarmed. I mean, that's perpendicular, you know, what is that? The ratios or whatever it is, yeah. because you had Samuel L. Jackson talk about the only time black people are safe is when white people are disarmed. Yeah. One when, when white people are. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, it's very <laughs> scarily relevant today too. And yeah. it's, I mean, I, not that, Obviously, that's not the working pragmatism we believe in at all on either count, but it's it's terrifying how that's something that could be ringing true today. He's, like, prophetic, not just yeah. for 2016, in right. a way, if you're talking about the symbolism being uh, about, like, if the Hateful Eight, if somebody is representative of Paul Ryan in this, I'm really afraid, because <laughs> the, he was a factor at the time. Yeah. Like, if, if these characters are symbolic of real-life political figures, I'm terrified of what Tarantino really thinks about politics. I know a lot of people... Or women in politics. I know a lot of people in the film industry, for that matter, Samuel Jackson being one of them, have some really harsh views about about politicians. I mean, I was just reading something about Anthony Hopkins. He's like, I hate them all. (laughs) At this rate, so do I, Anthony. (laughs) Yeah, good God. we got to get into worse scenes, though, Mike. I know Americans aren't the type to let a little thing like unconditional surrender get in the way of perfectly good war. (laughs) That was funny. Anyway, uh, worse scenes... Language is here. It's been a running theme. It's unnecessary. You know our stance on it. Of course, he could have written around yeah. these words in this movie, right? I, I, that has been my stance. Yes, for all of them, absolutely, it's unnecessary. I think, may you know, maybe for drive home effect, to drive home the authenticity of the time, you include a few. But we've seen that done in Mudbound and Twelve Years a Slave and other period pieces where you, you pick and choose mm-hmm. your battles. But, like, how many times these words are used? And it's not just the one word. It's a multi, multiple words in this movie. Sure. It's multiple yeah, it's, slurs yeah, it's going on. Definitely, definitely I gross. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think so at all. I, I co-sign. And does it add to the authenticity? 
No. Wow. Well, maybe, but like, How? why can't we get a retconning of all of it? We like, have a, yeah, right. Like, see, I'm of the belief that the more it's used, whether you want to use it for artistic purposes or whatever, the more you insist on using it, the more it's in the lexicon of language. And the only way you can eradicate it is if you just don't use it. Now, I'm speaking on behalf of white people. I'm not talking about the, the any kind of black person using that word at all because I can't. I can't relate to that. I don't think it's proper for white people to use the word, right. period. I mean, I understand Tarantino's arguments about political correctness for his characters. I understand the distinction there. Like, my it's not something on my brain, he says, when I'm writing these characters as an artist, I'm not thinking about political correctness as an artist. You see all these Academy Award movies, he right. says. Academy Award movies where they're thoroughly politically correct, but then the drama doesn't necessarily work. We saw that with The Post. Like, The Post is like all this sugar-coated bullshit. And we've seen that with a bunch of movies. Sure. Sugar-coated bullshit, and then, for whatever reason, there's no catharsis. Well, But Tarantino, does that help the drama here? I don't know. Like, is it a necessary evil... To get you where you need to if go. If every time you replace that word with the word a white Look, person saying boy, would it I'm, not have the same effect? I'm with you. I'm with you. And, and that would be gr gross too. Right. Of course but it would. Still, I'm with you. You could you could write around it. And he does write around it at times. I wish he could just minimize it so much more. Or just, let's, let's get into another genre, please. Another period of time, yeah, Tarantino. Please. But I do think that Westerns, especially revisionist Westerns, like the spaghetti Western genre was, or at least the movies that Tarantino idolized, these show extreme evil in those movies, torture and all this mm -hmm. despicable stuff to make the payoffs work better. Now, the effect on us with Django, it was much more pronounced than in previous films. Like, we were rooting harder for Django I think than any other. Uh, it was a thesis for our episode. Yeah, Rooting harder for sure. Django than we may have any character we've watched in any movie this year. Agree. It's because you saw the extreme violence on the other end. That's why Agreed. the revenge genre has worked and has been so primal for an archetypal for years, and it's existed really throughout li literature and throughout storytelling. We've had the revenge genre. Uh, I not disagreeing with anything you say. Structure, genre, whatever you want to call it. But my it. my default position is that. Django did show extreme, gratuitous violence. I'd rather see that in lieu of these words. Because I just think yeah. it's so demeaning and belittling in the history with it. That's just my take. That's my stance on it. That being said, the violence against women is also here. Is, Inescapable. Is, it, is that necessary? Do we have to hate Bob Ruth's character that much? He deep throws things in for every single character to make them hateful and to make them hateable. Mm. We all, we hate all these characters mm -hmm. throughout this movie. Yeah. Every single one of them, except for OB. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's true. And it's it's inescapable how awful women are treated throughout this entire movie. And it's just terrible. I mean, it the really characters is. we should be rooting for is Minnie and Sweet Dave to an extent. But even them, you get hateable things about them. Mm -hmm. The only character that someone I liked, <laughs> uh, someone I like, is uh, OB. Yeah, I don't blame you. It's... You know, he gets the short straw every time. It was hilarious with the when Tarantino's like, and of course Ob got the short straw <laughs> to go out <laughs> into the snow again. Oh my god, it's a minefield. I mean, anytime we do this, we talked about how we we're gonna we we're gonna handle it. We we're gonna talk about it, and it was gonna come up. And it's true. It's it's a minefield with all of these movies. I don't know what the right answer is. I know you can you can believe what you want and let the chips fall where they may afterwards. And 
Boy, is it tough to watch this and not think he feels a certain way about about women in some allegorical category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what he's thinking. I know he did pause when he was writing this to get into the screenwriting advice eventually. Mm-hmm. After his first draft, he had to ask himself, was it misogynistic for him to kill Daisy Domergue at the end of the movie like he did? And he was afraid of that. Uh, he, and he basically wrote the second draft where she didn't die that way. And then the third draft, but he got to know that character much more. And then he said, now that I know her much more, now I can kill her. That's literally what he said. And How do they have enough strength uh, to hang her? I don't know. These guys are shot, bleeding out, it's struggling to breathe. Giallo amounts of blood. Yeah, and they're going to hang, have enough strength just to hang the bad person at the end? Just what? to fulfill what? that prophecy? Like, that whole spectacle at the end, I don't, like, it's so distasteful. I, Do, I does it work? Not, I did not like it. Does it work? No, every that's why every time I watch this movie, I'm just like, yeah, ill. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it, like, three times. I think I saw it twice when I, in the movies, and I saw it once now. Like, I, this is not a movie I rush to rewatch. Yeah. I just don't rewatch it. I saw it twice now. But, all right, so what is his writing process like, Mike? He owns a house in the Hollywood Hills. And he, he has a balcony, and he likes to write over his balcony. He says he can play music at this stage, wherever he is. And he basically goes out there at like 10 or 11, and he writes until like 5 or 6. Then he uh, goes into his pool, and that's reflection time. That's meditation time. He'll either think about, or he'll think about both of these things. He'll think about the work he's done. Is it good enough? Will Does he have to change and fix stuff? Or... He'll think about, if he likes the work he's done, he'll think about what he has to write next, where where the plot's going to go from there. He's kind of a, a, like George R. R. Martin talks about writing, is there are gardeners and there are architects or whatever. You know, there are people who like to have the floor plan and there are people who just actually grow things Growing organically. as they go. Hmm. And he's more of a gardener. He's not an outliner, Tarantino said in his past. He's made that pretty clear with how he talks about how the characters always talk through him for all these scripts. So I can imagine that translates to he's not necessarily going. I mean, he's talked about in interviews, too. He, he kind of knows what the endings are, but that's about it. Uh, and I would agree with him. Like, when you're in the shower or you're in the hot tub, like, I've been fortunate enough to where I can go in my uncle's hot tub when I was younger. When I was, I was like, just hanging out with Passion him for a week or two. And I was, like, writing a little bit during the day, hanging out. And at night, I would go in the hot tub. We would all be, I would get ideas like crazy. It's so, like, you, when you're relaxed, and I, you get, I get ideas in the shower all the time. Yes, but it's also much easier to just focus on that when you have a jillion dollars in the bank and somebody worrying about your bills for you. Yes. <laughs> you know, and yes. you don't have these real life the, issues you got to concentrate on. stresses <laughs> that you and I, that's why we right. probably can't churn out any shit these days. But I absolutely agree. The thing that struck me is that he did most of his other scripts writing through the night. So that was the, the big difference. Like, this was one of the first times... He, or one of the first times, but the last few movies, Django, Inglorious Bastards, and this one, he is no longer a vampire as a writer. The, huh. All the other movies, he's literally writing at the beginning of the night, going straight through. And now he's got this kind of easy, by-the-poolside writing habit. So if I were Quentin Tarantino, and I had made eight successful movies, ninth one's in the can, about to be showed, probably an Oscar contender, Yeah, I would... On my balcony in the Hollywood Hills, my 10th movie, I would do what he did already. I'd sprinkle in retirement stories, let people know I might be done after my next one. Okay. Um, I would take every page I wrote of my script, I would form it into a paper airplane, and I would just throw it into the Hollywood Hills. 
What? And I would let people just find these random and, and see if they could piece together the script I'm writing with it. See if people meet up online. I would take care of my Reddit forums to see if th- people are finding these things. I would watch YouTube to see if anyone's finding random Tarantinos. I wouldn't even sign them. They wouldn't know they're mine. I would just write. Make a copy and then paper airplane it into the Hollywood Hills. What's worse, that or what J.D. Salinger has been doing for the last <laughs> 50 years, just writing every day for 10 hours a day in a basement? I don't know. I, but your meta joke is very, very similar to what some other writers have done. I, I don't, it's in a weird way. It's why I can't handle fame. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. Yeah, if we do get famous at some point somehow... Uh, you're not allowed to know it. <laughs> Probably for the best. <laughs> Although I should be like just throwing paper airplanes out your fucking mansion window. I think this is genius. That's, that's fucking genius. Oh. The key to fame and relevancy is not letting people know if you're all there. Was Joaquin Phoenix ever hotter than when he was cosplaying for that movie with, uh, with what's his name? Though? Yeah. Uh, when he was like in hit after hit after hit. You're out of your mind. That's when he was hot. It's boring, Joaquin. I want crazy, Joaquin. <laughs> Let's do some Easter eggs and some Tarantino verse stuff to wrap this up with. I don't have. Tarantino verse stuff. I know you do. Uh, so let's end on that. But I'm going to talk about first the guitar. Mm. Like I alluded to earlier, that Kurt Russell smashed. Apparently, that guitar wasn't supposed to be smashed. Uh, it was in the calls in the script for a guitar that. that Daisy Donagu was playing to be smashed by Warren's character, but that guitar particularly was on loan from a museum. No! And it was an antique guitar, and Kurt Russell, not knowing that the scene was supposed to switch out guitars, just takes the real antique guitar that Jennifer Jason Leigh had been playing and smashes it. And the museum couldn't piece it back together, and now they no longer rent out guitars for movie productions. That's a good call <laughs> by museums. Maybe don't like rent out vases or guitars. <laughs> Can't believe that happened. It's like a light bulb could Apparently fall. Apparently, the, the Jennifer Jason Lee expression on her face because she knew that guitar wasn't supposed to be smashed. The look <laughs> on Daisy's face is authentic in her just Jennifer Jason Lee's reaction to you just broke an antique. Oh my God. Kurt uh, Russell has a lot of money, though. He so. does. And speaking of Kurt Russell, apparently, when uh, Ruth's character meets his demise after the hilarious puking up blood scene, mm. he stayed on the floor. Kurt Russell was actually on the floor himself. It was not a body double. It was not a mannequin. It was not a stunt double. Kurt Russell thought that since he had spent four months chained to Jennifer Jason Lee, he owed it to her and her character to actually be chained to his dead body wow. himself. So Kurt Russell stayed on the floor to play his own corpse. The hacked off arm of the law. That was actually Kurt Russell's arm. No. That was not lost on me either. <laughs> that old metaphor, or overt metaphor. I have one connection to the Tarantino verse, yeah. and this is from Cinema Blend's Eric Eisenberg and, and some others. I, I did see it in some videos. It turns out that Tim Roth's character is actually an ancestor of Archie Hickox, who was the film critic turned British lieutenant played by Michael Fassbender ah. in a 2009 feature that we just reviewed in Glorious Bastards. So that would put this film in the real than real universe so tarantino talks about it he's like he is the great 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 grandfather i'm not sure if he is the great or the great great or the great 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 but it's always the same which i loved that's what i would do too i would go from writing scripts and throwing those pages out to just writing random thoughts about my own work (laughs) paper planning those out there but yes i think think it's a business here cinema blends definitely uh, had the same point you did i mean this is a real realer than real tarantino verse uh, entry like uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, True Romance, and Glorious Bastards, now The Hateful Eight. It's not Kill Bill, Death Proof, From Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. 
Huh, interesting. All right. Good to know. So we have that established now for those of you that are keeping track of these universes. Uh, along the lines of Tarantino talking with Sidney Poitier about how he would approach Django, like we talked about in our Django review, he also took very seriously the race relations in this movie. We at least have evidence of that as Tarantino, he wanted to have a conversation with Samuel L. Jackson about what it meant for the Lincoln letter to be revealed as fake in the time of, of what it was used for and basically how it was juxtaposed in the movie yeah. and how it's this manipulation device. So the quote goes, this is from Collider, an article on Collider. The quote goes like this from the article, Tarantino and Jackson had a conversation about the Lincoln letter and the consequences of learning the truth about it. Said Jackson, quote, we had a really interesting conversation about it. John Ruth is trying to be a liberal at a time when there weren't any. He's faced with, quote, oh, so it's true what they say about you people, end quote. I could have fixed that, but there was no need to fix that. The only time my character feels safe is when he disarms arms other people in the real world that's a very real thing about what happens right now jackson's words here again we have to be these nice negroes so we feel safe walking around otherwise people will call people on you i feel sorry for everybody who even looks middle eastern right now because that's going to happen and for a minute it was us so when we had our conversation around the table it was one of those things like if you really feel like you want to be a part of the solution then i actually broke that down for john ruth a lie is a lie is a lie it's the lie of who you are and how you presented yourself. Those were Jackson's thoughts and what he told Tarantino with regards to that actually taking place within the script itself. To me, this just kind of points out, look, we have all these bad things we say about Tarantino and his mm -hmm. approach and how mm -hmm. he writes these things and the words he uses. It's There's at least evidence here between this conversation, the Sidney Poitier conversation, there's at least proof that he doesn't take these approaches lightly. Right. And he actually is willing and seeks out advice from others and is willing to listen and learn and judge the advice for himself. I think that's important. I think those stories are kind of important for him to keep putting out there. Yeah. If he's the one putting them out there, obviously in this case it was Samuel L. Jackson himself. But I think that's at least shows a progressive mindset and not this godlike egomaniac like we sometimes think he comes off as. I think that's a good place to end it, Mike. Yeah. Finally. We're done with the rewatch. And exhale. <laughs> All right, well, only one movie left, and I guess that's going to be coming out next week as you're listening to this this week. We will be recapping Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's what this was all leading up to. Right, the movie comes out for you a couple days from now. Right. But we'll, our review will come out about a week from this. So we want to know, obviously, as always, your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about The Hateful Eight, Django, and Glorious Bastards, the Kill Bill series, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown. Am I missing anything? Yes, I know. I can't remember anything either. else <laughs> that we cover here in the MMO Empire with regards to the Tarantino or otherwise. We can leave us those comments. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram at mm and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com dot com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts. Tune in, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just type in Mike, Mike, and Oscar. You'll see our cartoon faces smiling back at you. If you can take a couple seconds out of your day and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate that as well. May even give you a shout-out on this show. Michael, it's been a long day's journey in tonight. <laughs> the Iceman has cometh. The Iceman has cometh. What's next from MMO, and what can you tell these good people for words of wisdom? So we got MMO Weekly that will continue, of course. That's our weekly variety show on all the Hollywood news. As far as there. these people are concerned, that came out two came days out ago. Came out yesterday, and we'll have the next one. Two days ago. I can always say it's coming forward. <laughs> we can. <laughs> because it, it always comes every week. We also had a big announcement on our next weekly series that we're happy to jump into. Yeah. It, it involves Oscar stuff. That's why you should go listen to the last MMO. Yeah. 
Exactly. We have a Netflix Oscar Films episode that previews the seven major Oscar hopefuls for, for Netflix that'll come out this Saturday. Yeah. And we also <laughs> are going to be doing a bunch of movie reviews of Oscar hopefuls that come out in July, like The Farewell, that come out in August, like The Kitchen, and many others in the fall. We will continue to do our movie events. We will continue to do our speculation episodes and, and have fun with a lot of different things uh, involving movies. We're going to we turn ourselves movies. into an exclusively Play Mobile the Movie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Words of wisdom. I don't even think you pronounced it right. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, Mike, wisdom is let's not record eight episodes in one week again in like six days. This has been so hard. Hopefully we're getting it done. We're having fun with it. We're, we're studying hard. Yeah. <laughs> we're good at homework. I don't know if we're good at about talking about the homework, but we're trying <sighs> All right, guys. When reality sucks, as always, you can come watch movies with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. Go watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Support original movies. See ya. Oh, there won't be many, maybe five out of 20, but there won't be many coming home. Look real closely at the soul. Sure.